we've had so much pedagogical attention on beginners, which is wonderful. We need that. I mean, ever since Francis Clark kind of revolutionized everything, we've had all these wonderful methods that have been written and a lot of pedagogy class time is spent on elementary level and methods, which is again is good. But I think it's often to the expense then that there's nobody spending time doing a lot of pedagogical work on that middle section. We're either talking about advanced repertoire or how we teach beginners. Hi, I'm Ben Capelo and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Jana Williamson. In addition to performing as a soloist and collaborative pianist, Jana Williamson runs an independent piano studio in the western suburbs of Chicago, where she teaches pre-college students of all levels. Jana regularly presents to state and local music teachers associations and is a content creator for Top Music Pro. In 2020, she launched her YouTube channel and online teacher consultation service. Jana holds bachelor's and master's degrees in piano performance and is an MTNA nationally certified teacher of music. In this episode, we talked about teaching intermediate students. The interview is kind of divided into two parts. In the first part, we talked about some more big picture topics surrounding these students, like defining intermediate and talking about what musical skills these students have, talking about why intermediate students are sometimes ignored, and about what makes a great teacher of intermediate students. Then in the second part, we discussed a bunch of specific topics as they apply to intermediate students, such as encouraging creativity, repertoire, theory, musical analysis, technique, practice stamina, and creating performance opportunities. Hope you enjoy the interview. Jana, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. It's my pleasure, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Today, we're going to talk about issues that arise when students transition from beginner to intermediate. So before we talk about some of those specific topics, I want to just define our terms. So this word intermediate is very subjective. I've definitely had many parents describe their children as intermediate when they are definitely not. And I've had times when I've seen method books that are labeled intermediate that I personally find to be easier than some other method books that have a book labeled late beginner. So what are some of the generally accepted musical abilities of an intermediate student? And what are some of the resources out there that have contributed to this basic consensus? Yeah, I mean, it's a totally subjective term, right? So what you think is intermediate might be different than what somebody else does. And I think you're right. Across publishing, you see different labels on different things that don't really match up. I think publishing is the main reason why we even have these labels in the first place, because in order to sell a book, you have to tell a teacher what level it's for, you know, so they have some sort of in the door kind of idea of what they're buying. Um, so frequently on publications, you'll see elementary, late elementary, early intermediate, intermediate, etc. Um, and it really just means the middle ground. It's after a student has learned basic skills and, you know, is acquainted with music and how to play music on the piano. Um, you had Jane McGraw on the podcast recently and her book, the, I pull it out, The Pianist's Guide to Standard Teaching and Performance Literature, she has given level numbers from one to 10. I would say that her levels pretty much like from three and up would be what I would classify as intermediate. The lower levels she has are still kind of in the elementary vein. Um, Maurice Henson has his standard book, which is very similar. And he uses, he doesn't use numbers. He uses things like 
medium and moderate and things like that. So, um, you know, lots of people have contributed to this conversation. And then of course the other big contribution would be exam board. And they again use numbers typically. And it's usually those middle numbers somewhere from three to eight. It depends of course on the particular exam, but, but it's really a wide range of, you know, anything beyond elementary and before you get to the truly advanced repertoire. Yeah. So just to kind of pin this down a little bit, I don't know if you could provide any sort of specific musical skill that is assumed. Absolutely. Right. So when you leave the elementary level or that beginning level, here are some things that I've got in my head that your students should be able to do. They need to be able to read on the staff, including understanding what ledger lines are and know how to read those. They need to understand basic rhythm patterns up to triplets and 16th notes. They need to be able to keep a pulse steady in both simple and compound meter. Uh, They need to be able to play triads and understand what an inversion is. They need to have coordination between two hands doing two different things. So not just playing in unison together. They need to understand how to play in a key signature, even though they may not have gone beyond two or three sharps or flats in a key signature, they still need to know, okay, if there's two sharps, I'm in D major and I have to always play F as an F sharp. Um, I think they should know their pentascales for the most part, and even one octave scales, or even if they haven't practiced them a lot, they should know what a scale is. They have to execute basic articulation like staccato and legato. And then one thing that often gets overlooked is pedal. They, ha- they need to know what the damper pedal is and have a basic ability to do legato pedaling, even if, again, they haven't done it a whole lot. So that's a really long list, and that's just the things that I... That's what I came up with, like off the top of my head. And if you think of your favorite methods, whatever you're using, piano adventures or piano safari or whatever, you kind of think through what do they have at the towards the end, particularly for the ones. Uh, piano adventures is very long, so by the time you get to five, I really do believe it is like early intermediate. Um, but you know, what are the basic skills that they're covering in those methods? And when you finish it, that should be kind of the entering intermediate level. Uh, Thank you for that list. That's very helpful. As you were saying that, now you've got me sort of reflecting on all of my students and which ones can do that and which ones can't do that. That's very helpful. Um, Another big picture question, again, before we get into some of the specific challenges of intermediate students, there was a webinar you had with Tim Topham, who's also been on this podcast that I was listening to. um, And you pointed out that there tends to stereotypically be some teachers where their thing is teaching beginners and they're really good at that. Then there are other teachers who their thing is teaching advanced students. But there's rarely teachers who are quite skilled at both and especially rarely a teacher who would say, my core skill is intermediate students. Uh, Why does this group sometimes tend to get ignored compared with beginner and advanced students? Yeah, I, I think there's two things. I think the first is our educational system. You know, most teachers who go on to teach at the collegiate level pretty much go straight through school. They get a bachelor's, a master's, and a doctorate, and then they just teach at the collegiate level. So they're really focused on advanced level playing, and they don't typically teach a lot of you know, beginners or intermediate students. And then on the flip side, a lot of people who are teaching elementary level probably didn't get to that point um, and may not even have a degree, which is fine if they've done a lot of study and they, they feel confident in their own playing ability. We've had so much pedagogical attention on beginners, which is wonderful. We need that. I mean, ever since Francis Clark kind of revolutionized everything, we've had all these wonderful methods that have been written and a lot of pedagogy class time is spent on 
elementary level and methods, which is again is good. But I think it's often to the expense then that there's nobody spending time doing a lot of pedagogical work on that middle section. We're either talking about advanced repertoire or how we teach beginners. And then I think there's a cultural reality, certainly for Americans, but I, I know this is in play in a lot of the Western world, where we assume that bigger is better and that our students should always be on this like constant getting better, you know, or constant progression. And really, if you're not playing Beethoven's sonatas, you're not actually a pianist. And if you're not constantly ticking off the next harder thing, that you're not making music mm. or progressing in your lessons. And I think that's a real disservice to most of our students, because frankly, most of our kids are not going to get to an advanced right. level. Most students don't reach that. So we want them to have skill and feel confident and really be able to make music, even if straight up mid intermediate level is as far as they're ever as far as they ever go or as far as they're ever capable of playing yeah i think another thing that might lead to teachers feeling like they want to specialize in beginner or advanced is at least in my opinion stereotypically it's easy to imagine what a great teacher of a beginner would look like it's someone who has a yeah. great personality great with kids fun uh, patient, you know, and it's easy to imagine what a great teacher of an advanced student would be because it'd be someone who knows all the intricacies and ins and outs of piano and technique and expression. Yeah. But there's yeah. nothing, at least to me, that stereotypically would arise as someone who is excellent with intermediate students. So what would you say fundamentally makes a great teacher of intermediate students compared with great teachers of beginners or advanced students? Yeah, and this is such a good question. And I'm not sure that before today, I actually had like a really great answer to it. So you've made me think about this for sure. I'm going to come out and just say the obvious at the beginning here, but I think anybody teaching intermediate students has to be able to play at a higher level. So those of us teaching intermediate need to be able to be advanced pianists, and that should go without saying, but I think it needs to be said out loud. Um, I think we have to be able to be inspiring and pass on enthusiasm for repertoire, whatever level it is. And it may not have the fun title like Sunken Treasure or whatever, you know. Um, it may be a Sonatina or a Bore or something. We still have to be really enthusiastic about it and find the special thing in that particular piece so that our students can get excited about that repertoire as well. I think great teachers at this level become more of a coach than a teacher in some ways. They're coaching their students in how to learn, how to move forward, how to be autonomous, and less, you know, telling things, which we should never just be telling things. We don't really want to do that. But it's true that at the low levels, they don't know anything. So we really have to just tell them a lot of things and teach them what eighth notes are, you know, and all those kinds of things. And at the intermediate level, we really want our students to be discovering that and kind of guiding mm -hmm. them you know, helping them remember what they already know and how they can apply that. So, so it is a little bit more of that coaching type feel. And then I think this is the real core. I think any great intermediate teacher has the ability to translate advanced topics and ideas and distill those down to the intermediate level in a way that that mm -hmm. student, regardless of his or her experience, regardless of age, it could be an adult student, you know, um, that they can understand it and apply it. So we have to be able to distill performance practice. We have to be able to train technique in a really incremental way and not just jump over things. I always relate that to like sports. You know, um, if you're gonna run a marathon, of course you're not gonna go from not running anything to running 20 miles. You're gonna, you know, incrementally. And it's the same thing with, with technique at the piano. 
And then I, I think the last part of that dis, distillation, is that the word, of distilling <laughs> this is um, having a vision for advanced expressive performance, like we're talking about at those advanced levels, and being able to lead a student to attain mastery, even if the repertoire is simpler. So, you know, if they're working on a Clementi Sonatina, we want our vision for what that's gonna sound like and what we lead our students to be ultimately just as expressive and beautiful as if they were playing a Mozart sonata. You know, it, it should have that same goal in mind. Yeah, um, out of everything you said there, one thing that I really liked, which I actually haven't thought about before, which I completely agree with, is this idea that you often have to explain kind of complicated concepts in a way that's accessible. Because when you're with an advanced student, yes, the concepts are advanced, but you can just talk, you can just explain them for the most part the way you'd explain it to anybody. Right. And if it's a beginner student, yes, you can't explain things in an advanced way, but the concepts are very simple. With intermediate, there's this, you, you're often in situations where you have to explain kind of higher level musical yes. concepts, but still cater them in a way that a somewhat younger or somewhat more beginner um, student can understand. So that is an interesting yes. specific challenge. Another challenge now talking specifically about the group that I want to spend most of today talking about, which is students who are just transitioning from beginner to intermediate is being creative as a teacher and how to encourage creativity and lessons. So for me, when I'm teaching very young beginners, it's very easy to kind of put my own, you know, quote unquote, like my stamp on the lesson. Yeah. And there's all sorts of fun things you can do, like coloring activities. I use sometimes stuffed animals to reinforce technique and lots of games, props. I can have this, you know, very effusively sort of over the top energetic personality. But doing these sort of things with intermediate students can sometimes come across as infantilizing or even belittling and sometimes trying to overcorrect for that, you can go the opposite route and then make the lessons dry and kind yeah. of boring. So how can we keep our lessons with intermediate students fun and exciting and encouraging creativity the same way we would with a younger beginner? Well, just going to first start off by confessing, I've taught a lot of dry lessons in my time, so they don't all <laughs> okay. have to be perfect, and we have okay. good days and bad days. I also want to say- I'm sure, me too. <laughs> beginning lessons with you sound really fun. So um, <laughs> I would say you don't have to stop the creativity or the games. You're right. You don't want it to be infantilizing. You, you want to tailor things that are age appropriate, but I do think if you can talk to an adolescent or a teenager- at, at their age level and still have fun things. I've never had a teenager turn down stickers. I always tell my students. Really? Yeah, I always say, okay, oh, are, are you too old for stickers now? And they all look at me like, no, of course I'm not too old for stickers. Oh. You know, so I frame it that way. Like, just let me know when you're too old for the sticker and, and I'll stop offering them. Um, and of course, yeah, absolutely. Creativity might not be as you know, jump around the room um, right. type energy, but it's still there. And I think, I think you want to make sure that you're always relating everything that you do together. So your historical repertoire and your technique and your creative pursuits. Um, a lot of people I know will do things like improvise on the scale that you're working on, you know, and the teacher plays a basic chord accompaniment, or let's do a basic pop chord progression in the key that we're studying for our technique this week or in the key of your new piece. So you're doing something in E flat. Let's figure out some basic chord progressions in E flat. All those kinds of things can inspire a lot of creativity. I should say, I think one of the best things is that there just needs to be a lot of music making in the lesson. Mm -hmm. And the students should just be playing a lot because mm -hmm. surefire way for boredom is if they're just sitting there, you know, and you're talking mm -hmm. a lot. 
So I think we should be talking less. They should be playing more. And certainly if they need to talk to, you know, ask questions or something, they should be talking maybe more than, than we are. And I know that's a temptation for me is just to talk way too much. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of context for different types of playing, you know, playing repertoire, playing technical exercises, improvising, playing duets, sight reading. Um, the more you're doing, the the more engaging I think it will be. Um, but then I think also we just have to know our students, the individual person sitting in front of us. And um, I had a local colleague who used to say, be a student of your student. And I think that's such a great way mm. to phrase it. Like watch your student, figure right. out what motivates her. Yeah. You know, what is she smiling during? Um, what is she going home week after week and practicing, maybe to the expense of other things, you know, on her right. assignment list? It's so important to relate everything that we do to what's relevant in our students' lives. Um, even technique, I, I have had students who are gymnasts and gymnastics, even though I have no idea how gymnasts do anything that they do, it's one of those great things of talking about, you know, they have to run and bounce and then trust that they're going to fly through the air. You know, we can relate that to moving our hand across the keyboard. I wouldn't use a gymnastics um, analogy with a student for whom that was not a thing. You know, I'm going to try to relate it to something in their life or something that's at least culturally relevant for everyone. Um, so it's all about like getting their, knowing their personality and how you can relate the topic that you're working on right then to something that they understand interested in. Hmm. Yeah, there's so many things you said there that I think are deserving of their own episode. And a lot of what you mentioned there, I have had episodes on like improvising. Right. I really like that suggestion about um, improvising in the scale you're working on. And you brought up some kind of movement activities. I just did an episode on that. So there's a lot of stuff you said there, but out of everything there, the one that I want to sort of uh, hone in on is you brought up repertoire and using a lot of different exciting repertoire and being excited about it. So this is one thing that I do feel is a challenge specifically for intermediate students, because for beginner students, when they're on method books, you can kind of be you know, like a page turner teacher and just kind of let the method book do all the work for you in terms of the yep. sequencing. And there's you know the tried and true, you know, five or six beginner method books that are very, very popular. And so you yeah. can trust that if you use one of those, you'll probably be fine. But with intermediate students, you've described a quote, massive sea of repertoire. And a lot of it is not necessarily organized sequentially in the same way that beginner method books are. Um, and you've offered many resources on how to evaluate intermethod, uh, intermediate repertoire series, as well as even individual intermediate level pieces. So what are your thoughts on this? And can you point our listeners to any of the resources you've offered or other resources out there that can help us pick the perfect repertoire for our intermediate students? Yeah. Um, number one tip is to use a really solid intermediate historical repertoire series. And so that would be something like Jay McGraw's Masterwork Classics, um, or and there's many, and if you go to my website that that Ben's gonna link, I have a a link to a download for knowing how to evaluate those, as well as it has a list of suggested ones on there. We have so many great editors doing wonderful work that we don't have to do all that work ourselves anymore. Um, and so those books don't end up being like a method, you know, they're not arranged sequentially and you don't have to use everything in the book. Certainly, um, it would take you a very long time to get through all of it, but they at least just provide a framework that, you know, everything is generally the same level. I'm not going to jump my student too far ahead by assigning something else out of this book. And many of them also include a suggested order of study. Jane McGraw really does that a lot in her books. Yeah. And I find that to be so helpful. Um, I think. 
we need to beware of giving students things that are too hard because of so many reasons. And I just, I, I get worried about teachers who don't have any kind of idea of what they're going to do. And I would caution against just picking random pieces. Now that doesn't mean you can't supplement. And if a student comes in and says they want to work on a particular type of thing, absolutely find the thing that works for them. <clears throat> but we want to know what skills, you know, we're incrementally working towards. If you use an exam syllabus, I'm in Illinois and we have our achievement in music exam system, and that's a theory and performance exam combined. So it's real easy then to see like what theoretical skills line up with the repertoire that I'm working on with this student. Um, so I think it depends on where you are, what your context is. You just need some sort of plan for not just playing random pieces on the, on, yeah. on the piano and also a variety of styles. You know, I want my students to be playing um, something Baroque and classic, sorry, Baroque or classical, something romantic, something 20th century, most of the time, as well as playing something that's in a more popular style, whether they prefer pop and contemporary or jazz, you know, whatever that might be. So that they're not just playing the same kinds of things over and over again. And I really am an advocate for a lot of repertoire. I don't think a student should play three pieces in a year. There should be a lot of repertoire experiences as well as other experiences as well. What about number of repertoire pieces at a given time? This is a really hard question. I think it really depends on the student because okay. it's it's so dependent on their level. The higher advanced you are, the less pieces you're going to be playing at one time. We all, If mm -hmm. we went to college, we know it's like your standard three or four jury pieces, right? Every semester. Right. Um, for lower intermediate, I would hope that they would be doing, you know, four or five different things in an assignment, whether that includes technique and some more creative things. Right. Not necessarily not. four or five pieces, but four or five items in yeah. the assignment list. Yeah, but I have uh, students who just don't practice very much. So I'm not going to have yeah. my expectations out of whack for them. I'm going right. to make sure I understand that really it's reasonable to assume this kid is going to do two things in a practice session and then mm -hmm. I just have to tailor it to them. Yeah. Um, earlier in your answer, you were talking about not wanting to assign students pieces that are too hard. I will admit this is very tempting with intermediate yes. students because once they get to the point where they can play at least kind of a real repertoire piece, then these students often feel like, okay, now I'm there. You know, like the world is your oyster. And then they start requesting things that are definitely not intermediate. Like you've talked about Claire de Lune and the Pathetique Sonata, which are definitely advanced. And I think a lot of teachers, and I admit in my earlier days of teaching, I did this, like feel an inclination to kind of capitulate in those yes. instances and sort of think like, okay, this is a little too hard, but I want them to be excited and they really want to do this piece and I want them to stay motivated. And and a lot of what I've seen from you, this is a perspective that you challenge. So once students get to the point where they're intermediate and they can start to play you know, pieces that are not necessarily purely pedagogical pieces, yeah. and in some cases, real pieces, why should we avoid assigning pieces that are advanced? Yeah, yeah we've all done it. I've done it too. Um, I, I would say that technique is one of the biggest things, which you've already mentioned. You don't, you know, run a marathon having not trained at all. It's the same mm -hmm. thing for pianists. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to say that you should never, ever assign a piece that you think is too hard for a student. It really depends on the case, especially older students, adults, adult recreational students. If they want to hack away at something, go for it. And like I have a high school senior right now who's not going to be a music major in college. I let her pick out a piece that I just know is too hard for her because she really wanted to do it. And this is her swan song, you know, so it's going to take us most of the year to, to get through this. And that's a, you know understandable circumstance for that. But for everyone else, 
I honestly think motivation is one of the biggest problems with this. They don't know what we know, which is what's actually hard about this. Right. They don't know. And so if they come in and say, I want to play Claire de Lune, they have no idea the challenges that are ahead of them. So, mm -hmm. so we do. And I think we can make a plan and say, okay, I can get you to that point, but we got to do X, Y, Z before we get there. Or you can do a simplified version that, you know, thank God for all the wonderful simplified arrangements Carol Mott's and so many other people have done to let them have scratch that itch and move on. And typically, if you put the real thing in front of them, they'll get two lines to maybe a whole page into it, past the famous part that's the beginning, <laughs> and fizzle out. And instead of having this motivating experience of I can play something that everybody recognizes, it becomes really demotivating. Oh, I can't. Yeah, they think that they're bad and they exactly. make self-deprecating comments. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So normally I just get so frustrated in the lessons because I'm like, I'm doing all this work and it's not working here because they're yeah. simply not capable. So I feel bad about myself then too in my yeah. teaching. They feel bad about themselves and then they don't want to practice anything. <laughs> <laughs> so I would much rather just prevent that whole problem whenever I can. And instead, I really try to, okay, if a student is telling me they want to play Claire de Lune, I need to find some really lyrical, flowy pieces with arpeggiated chords, right. you know, and a lot of pedal um, and maybe some two against three, you know, and if they're telling me they want to play the Pathetique Sonata, I need something with really big minor chords, you know, that they can <laughs> just play really loudly. And so that's kind of goes back to that phrase be a student of your student, you know, yeah. figure out what they want and then offer them the appropriate level for that. Yeah. I, on, in my end, right now, like nowadays in my teaching, if a student ever comes to me with a request like that, the two things I do are the two things you said there, either number one, I try to think of another piece that's at their level that is a similar vibe, I guess, to right. use a colloquial term, like what you were describing with the pathetique, or I do use a lot of simplified arrangements. I know some teachers are adamantly against them, but I don't agree with that. I think that students that I've used it with really like it, and it does get them excited much more than if you try the real piece and then they experience what in my psychology classes in college they call learned helplessness, where just oh. you try and try and nothing happens, and it is very demotivating. Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about musical analysis and sort of theory and um, performance practice. So in beginner lessons, I think musical analysis is relatively simple. Maybe we'll ask them to circle the skips and steps or talk about basic form, what ideas repeat, but it's quite minimal for the most part. When students get older, they can you know, begin to understand slightly more advanced concepts. But again, we don't want to, as we were talking about earlier, make it too hard and then suddenly hit them with <laughs> like make them write fugues or something. So can you talk about how we might approach musical analysis for intermediate students specifically reaching a more advanced level than we would for a beginner, but not um, going too fast and being yeah. too advanced? Yeah, well, I think it comes down to we have to understand what we play. Um, and I know not all teachers ascribe to this, but I really do. I've always had teachers who made me do a lot of analysis. And I just think it's very important um, for so many reasons. It's not, I don't want my students to be key pushers. That's not what we do here. We are music makers. And so in order mm -hmm. to really expressively play your music, you do have to have some sort of understanding for it. Um, understanding and analysis also just leads to much quicker or more efficient learning, of course. Um, you know, things like 
when you have broken chord patterns, you circle them and label them C major or G7, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, things like marking the form, as you said, I firmly believe that from the very first sonatina, all students can understand the terms exposition development and recapitulation. I tell my students that recapitulation is my favorite music word because it has so many syllables and I make them say it and spell it, <laughs> okay. you know, and it, it, it's one of those examples of me just being a music nerd for them. And then they laugh that that's my favorite word. Um, and for and, me, it's a pagiatura. Oh, that, that's a good one, too. It's a little okay, hard yeah. to say. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, labeling these things in the music and explaining to them. I mean, sonata form is one of those I'm not sure I really understood fully until graduate school. And I certainly couldn't I couldn't analyze it really well until I taught a million sonatinas. But it's based on the idea of theater and any novel kind of scope follows the same idea. You introduce the characters, you have the conflict in the development and all the, you know, the dragon gets slayed. And then you have the resolution at the end. And I mean, a lot of my adolescent students have read Harry Potter. So just like the idea of introducing the characters, having a mm -hmm. conflict and a resolution, they can understand that. And then we can talk about well, the exposition ends in the dominant and the recapitulation ends in the tonic. And so we can find the chords. Again, that's not hard theory. That's like C major and G major. Mm -hmm. You can find those chords and outline them. And then of course, all this understanding leads to them being able to memorize and play fluidly if they're gonna do a performance of this kind of piece. So, I mean, those are just some, some examples. I frequently will go through chord analysis with my students and just have them label pop chord symbols for triads or seventh mm -hmm. chords. I do not try to do a lot of explanation of relationships a lot of time because that's all. Yeah, I was going to ask about if you ever do Roman numerals or anything like that, or if we, that's maybe till later. We do Roman numerals and we will we'll get to that point of relationship, but the first step is just that they have to actually see the chords. So if they're yeah. playing an Alberti bass pattern, they have to know that it's a G major triad or whatever it is. Um, so for that lower intermediate level, it's just going to be finding the chords, blocking them, knowing how, and then for upper intermediate, certainly we're going to talk about why is that chord minor there? Um, what, you know, there's a deceptive cadence. That's a really exciting moment. Yeah. You know, uh, oftentimes though, you just have to like, they just have to know what key they're in and then know what's not following the rules. So where are the accidentals? You know, frequently that's the special note, um, basic things like major and minor switches are going to mm -hmm. affect how you express how you play expressively in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I think those are some some basic ideas, but yeah. essentially it leads to practical skills, you know, it helps us connect what they're doing in theory and technique and improvisation and pop music even to historical repertoire, and it leads to more expressive performance. Yeah, I particularly like that example you gave about the dragons, or not dragons, but uh, about comparing everything to characters and Harry Potter, and then using that as a segue to talking about, well, uh, there's the recapitulation, and then this is in the dominant. I mean, that to me seems like a very nice halfway point between beginner and advanced, where we start out by talking about characters in Harry Potter the way we would with the beginner, yes. but then we transition from that into giving specific theory concepts that are too advanced for a beginner. I mean, so that seems right. to me like right at the perfect level. Um, another topic I want to talk about that challenges technique um, with beginners. I think we all have our very, very basic things that we say that are relatively innocuous, like bench height and you know, what shape to put our arm in and how much we should curve our fingers. And these are things that are 
I think most piano teachers agree on. But as you've commented, sometimes when we get to the older levels or more advanced, there's kind of different opinions on technique. Um, and I, in the webinar that you gave with Tim Topham that I referenced earlier, you said that for all intents and purposes, your main goal is alignment. So can you talk about how you might encourage alignment with an intermediate student as compared to a beginner or any other specific concepts as far as technique that you would introduce at an intermediate level, but not at a beginner level? Yeah. I love the word alignment. I'm I think if I'd had more time, it, I think that was in a Q&A part of that webinar and I said it quickly. I might say that my ultimate goal is more of a natural technique. And typically okay. when we talk, I know you just had Edna Galansky on the podcast, so yeah. I'm gonna defer to her as the expert in this for sure. But but when we think about natural technique, a lot of times that does just, just mean aligning things or using our bodies in the way that they were designed. And so as students progress, and particularly as they play harder repertoire that in, includes things like octaves and you know things that require just much more effort, I guess, in some one way of thinking about it, we just want to keep making sure that they're using their bodies in that way that they've been designed. So yes, you mentioned uh, seating posture and hand position. Um, I think elementary students should also have a basic idea of rotation and detached or legato articulation and a flexible wrist. So all of those things are going to continue on into the intermediate repertoire. And, we're, and one of the things about great teachers is that they're willing to just repeat the same things. I mean, I'm still working on particularities of hand position with some of my early advanced students, and we have to just be willing to come back to it over and over and over again. And as children grow, we have to make sure that their bodies, you know, they're sitting at the right height, are their feet supported? Do they not need to be supported anymore? You know, because they've gotten taller and all that kind of thing. I think typical intermediate technical skills that we focus on be the obvious drills, such as scales and arpeggios. Um, we have to train our students into how to play those in the system that we, we want to use. We have to expand, as I said, beyond that basic five finger pad, uh, five finger position into playing larger intervals. An octave technique is one of the big things that must be addressed in intermediate playing because we know as advanced pianists that octaves are everywhere, especially if you're going to play anything from the 19th or 20th century, right? They, they're just everywhere. So I really make a priority of setting my students up with knowing how to play, how to navigate octaves and then how to release tension from anything that's bigger, a four note chord or an octave. Uh, we'll, of course, then use larger rotations. There's a lot more moving quickly across the keyboard, so students need to know how to leap. Um, I, a lot of intermediate kids like to leap and then find the note and freeze and then play it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, and we have to get them to just, I use the analogy of a ping pong ball a lot, just bounce and play. You know, you don't stop and then, and then play the note. Um, of course, we have to develop faster finger work and um, for lack of a better word, finger independence. The Talbot people will tell you that's not a thing, but but just clarity in passage work. And then I think two things that get ignored a lot are going back to the damper pedal. There's a lot of work in the intermediate level on damper pedal technique. And you know, bad damper pedal usage can ruin an entire piece. 
Um, and then stamina for longer pieces, because most elementary level pieces are, you know, 16 to 32 measures long, take a minute or less to play. And really, when you get into mid to upper intermediate level, you could have sonatina movements that are close to five minutes. You can have romantic pieces that that are big and just take longer amounts of time. So we have to build that up and make sure they're practicing all of that as well. Yeah, that's interesting for you to say octave technique um, is a big thing that you encourage with intermediate students. So not to put you on the spot, but just in a nutshell, what do you say to the intermediate students about playing octaves? Okay, so we start with octave scales at a very slow tempo. So like uh, okay. that kind of thing. And I explain to them that for most, and you know, if you have a a student, either an adult or a teenager whose hands are very big, this is just not going to be as much of a problem. But for students who are, <laughs> especially adolescent girls, you know, this is a thing that they have to deal with, um, that we expand out like a rubber band when you're stretching it, but that in between the octaves, it's going to go back to um, its normal, like I said, natural hand shape. So if this is my natural hand shape, um, mm. you know, just like I'm hanging it at my side, I'm not going to stay locked in that octave position in between each one it's going to release and go back to natural hand. Oh, okay. Expand out, right. contract back in, or whatever words you want to use. Um, but I typically see a lot of claw hand from a lot of intermediate students where they just, you know, hold it in one position yeah, and, right. and move across the piano. And that's what I want to nip in the bud from the very, very beginning. Yes. And doing it that way does lose kind of the alignment that I was bringing up in the initial question about seeing everything as connected. I mean, when you have your fingers locked and stretched like that, it's very hard to keep the sound supported. Right. Um, is there any other advice or any other topics before we close off today that you have that we didn't cover about working with intermediate students or specifically students who are transitioning right on the cusp of beginners and intermediate? Well, I think like anything else in teaching, it just takes time. So any newer teachers who are listening to this, you know, give yourself a lot of grace and patience um, until you know the repertoire and you've taught it a few times. It's hard to really anticipate what might go wrong, <laughs> you know, in this transitional period. So so use really good materials like we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, and I'll link in the show notes to what you were talking about earlier that you made. Yeah. But I mean, even like Jane McGraw is the goat mm -hmm. in this, you know, and Maurice Hinson's editing is excellent. You know, so make sure you're using good editions, good books, good support materials, because there has been a lot that has been published. Um, you know, stay connected to your piano teacher friends and 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 also get your students playing for other people if there's a festival or an exam system or other evaluative event near you, get your students playing for other people so that you can get some feedback. I can't tell you how many things I have foundationally changed because years ago, a judge, you know, rightly so made a comment on a student. I realized I was doing this with a lot of, oh. a lot of students. So we, we need all the outside support that, that we can, we can get and teachers who've just been on the road longer or who have taught this level longer, you know, have a lot of wisdom and just experience to share. So, so take it. Yeah. Okay. Well, obviously today we spoke very specifically about one type of student and you have 
done work on a very, very wide range of subjects related to piano pedagogy. So before we go, can you give our listeners a sense of what you're up to now and where everyone can go to learn more about you? Sure. Well, my website is the best place and I made a little page for you, Ben. So it's mm-hmm. janawilliamson.com slash all keyed up. And Jana has two N's in it. So J-A-N-N-A. Um, My other place I would love to direct people to is my YouTube channel, which has a variety of things, including my own performances, a few on there. But my big project there is a series of videos on individual pieces from the intermediate historical repertoire. And they're all about 10 to 13 minutes long. And I just kind of do what I was saying a minute ago about I've gone down the road ahead of you on this. I have taught these pieces hundreds of times. I know what the technical and musical challenges are, and I'm happy to just encourage you in your teaching of this by helping you realize what the pitfalls might be (laughs) so you don't have to experience them, you know, just in trial by error. And my hope is that by watching one of those, you can take some of the practice tips that I give or performance practice ideas and apply them to all kinds of pieces that are in a similar style or a historical era. Yeah, I have to say, I particularly found a lot of use for the YouTube video you had about how to teach holiday pieces um, a few weeks ago. Everyone should go watch that. I mean, they should watch all the videos, but specifically that one. Maybe I guess right now in January, (laughs) it's a little different for for next year. And I know some teachers continue teaching holiday pieces. So that was a great one. Those videos... That should apply to any um, chord chart. So you could use it for anything popular. Mm -hmm. um, But I like to do more practical skills with holiday music than than written arrangements. Yeah. And also earlier in this interview, I was asking you about uh, your thoughts on sort of musical analysis um, as far as pieces. And I do think that your videos are a great example when you're talking about intermediate pieces of what level of musical analysis is appropriate for this age. Because in all of them, you talk about sort of phrasing and motivic development. But in terms of what level of that you could talk about with an intermediate student. So I do think those videos are a great resource for that. And I will link to those in the show notes. Great. Uh, Jenna, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you, Ben. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time.